This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello, a good evening, and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight, I have the immense pleasure of being joined by my co-founder here at Navarra Media, James Butler. James, how are we? <laughs> I'm very well. It's really, really nice to be back. It's great to have you back. It's always a pleasure. Coming up later tonight, we look at recent elections in Poland and the significant result they've produced. British-Palestinian MP Leila Moran has to answer a ridiculous question from Richard Maidley, and the BBC apologise for their coverage of pro-Palestine protests. Stay tuned for all of that. The war in Gaza increasingly threatens the spillover into the wider region as key players begin to exchange warnings over Israel's action in the Palestinian territory. Tonight, President Joe Biden will travel to Israel as the US looks to make a demonstration of force in the region. The country is now sending a Marine Rapid Response Force to Israel, consisting approximately of 2,000 Marines and sailors. Uh, That force will join a growing number of American warships and troops already stationed in the region, as the US tries to deter Hezbollah and Iran from entering the conflict. The Iran-backed Lebanese group Hezbollah has been exchanging fire with Israel across the Israel-Lebanon border over recent days, and the latest U.S. military move follows these recent comments from Iran's foreign minister. All possible options and scenarios are there for Hezbollah. Naturally, resistance leaders will not allow the Zionist regime to take any action in Gaza. And when it feels reassured about Gaza, move on to other resistance areas in the region. Therefore, any preemptive measure is imaginable in the coming hours. If we don't defend Gaza today, tomorrow we have to defend against these phosphorus bombs in the children's hospital of our own country. In other words, Iran may need to fight in Israel in order to not fight in Iran. Now, there's a certain fatalism about that, but obviously a lot of this is brinkmanship. Human Rights Watch has accused Israel of using white phosphorus munitions in Gaza, a claim Israel denies. And while Iran and the US up the ante, others in the region are taking a more diplomatic approach. Speaking at a press conference with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Jordan's King Abdullah set out the emerging risks. This year is already the bloodiest year for Palestinians and Israelis in recent memory. It will get much worse unless we stop this war and the human catastrophe it is creating. And stop it, we must. We must all stand against all forms of violence and with its victims, no matter their identity, nationality, or religion. And Your Excellency, the whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss that this new cycle of death and destruction is pushing us towards. The threat of this war expanding is real. The cost this will bring on all of us is too much to bear. All our efforts are needed to make sure we don't get there. The King was also asked about whether Jordan would be prepared to take more Palestinian refugees from Gaza. This was his answer. On the issues of refugees coming to Jordan, and I think I can quite strongly speak on behalf not only of um, 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 uh, Jordan as a nation, but of uh, our friends in Egypt, that is a red line. Uh, Because I think that is the plan by certain of the usual suspects to try and create de facto issues on the ground. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. This is a situation of humanitarian dimension that has to be dealt inside of Gaza and, uh, and, and the West Bank and not to try and push the Palestinian challenge and their future onto other people's shoulders. A hint there that Jordan and Egypt suspect any refugees fleeing Gaza would not be granted a right of return by Israel. The Rafah crossing from Israel into Egypt remains closed, and while Egypt has agreed to allow dual Palestinian Egyptian nationals to enter the country if the border reopens, it's resisting Western pressure to take refugees of other nationalities. Egypt has also agreed to use the Rafah crossing as a corridor for humanitarian aid, but says that Israel is not cooperating. In Gaza, the situation is worsening. At least 71 people were killed by Israeli strikes last night. That brings the death toll from airstrikes to 3,000 Palestinians. Officials say about one-third of those deaths are children. Gaza remains under Israeli siege, with water having run out in a majority of the territory. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees has now warned that lack of sanitation is likely to lead to outbreaks of disease such as cholera. 
Medicines, shelter and food are also in short supply, with a million people thought to have been displaced within the Strip. Israel's assault on Gaza is a response to Hamas's 7th of October attacks on Israeli civilians that killed more than 1,400 people. The group also took hostages, and this is key going forward, with Hamas saying between 200 and 250 are being held inside Gaza. The group has now said that it will release them in exchange for 6,000 Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. Uh, James, this is a big question right off the bat. How, how worried should we be about the possibility of a wider conflict in the Middle East encompassing Hezbollah, Iran? Because they were, those were pretty stern and remarkable words from the Iranian foreign minister, weren't they? Yeah, those were those are pretty astonishing. And I mean, there have been less kind of clear statements, certainly from um, Khamenei today. There was a sort of rather labyrinthine and difficult to decode um, statement um, that, that was very unclear. But yeah, I mean, the thing that has been so striking, I think, about this period is that it's for the first time, I think, in my adult life, and I'm sure yours as well, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen next. It used to be the case that... Um, you could see quite clearly the way in which these you know, relatively minor skirmishes uh, would go. Here, it's very unclear. So I think we have to say that, that, that it is a risk. I don't think any regional player really wants um, things to erupt in the way that they might. But that doesn't mean that they won't. Um, it's certainly clear that Biden is there this evening uh, to, to desperately stop um, a regional war escalating. And not that is going to depend on exactly what Israel does in Gaza. Um, this brings up a series of other questions. So, for instance, the capability of the IDF, there are some lingering questions there. Um, its last major territorial or protracted conflict, there have been sort of small kind of ground operations. That was South Lebanon, 82 to 2000, very long, very difficult, um, very unpleasant experience for it. Um, so I think it's important to say that we just don't know what's going to happen next. And that is new. That's a very um, strange and unusual place for us to be in. One of the things I think is interesting is that media coverage in the US has walked back um, claims around Iranian links and certainly briefing from the White House has said, oh, we don't think there are, uh, it's not clear that there are Iranian links to the Hamas attack um, on October the 7th. One of the things to say is that there has been obviously a long and protracted cold war between Iran and, uh, or a multi-dimensional, multi-front proxy war between Iran and Israel, um, on which Israel has been on the front foot recently, it has to be said. It has had an enormous attack, a Stuxnet attack against Iranian nuclear facilities not so long ago. Uh, and of course, Iran has been, in some senses, de-escalating recently. It has um, undertaken recent prisoner swap with the United States. But it's not impossible. I think things are extremely unpredictable here. Um, and that is, I think, one of Hamas's goals um, with the attack in uh, on the 7th of October was to um, destabilize what had become a very predictable um, situation. Yeah, I think that's so well put, James. And I think one of the major things that's changed really over the last 20 years is, A, the ability of Iranians to manufacture their own pretty high-tech uh, military technologies from high-speed speed boats uh, to drones, which they're selling to the Russians, but also the emergence of a, a quite powerful and distinct civil society across West Asia. We saw protests in Baghdad over the week, you know, maybe 100,000 people there, protests in Tehran, they're obviously led by the government. But, but this idea of non-state actors in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, obviously amenable to Iranian foreign policy interests, some would say they're controlled by them. I think it's a bit more complicated than that, is a major shift uh, from how West Asia, the Middle East, has played out 20 years ago. And it does feel like the media and much of the political class is still in that headspace of the early 21st century. Next story. The Labour Party is making a dog's dinner with its response to Israel's alleged war crimes in Gaza. And now it seems many of its councillors have had enough. ITV's political correspondent Shahab Khan has posted this on social media. New. I'm told the Labour leadership arranged an urgent meeting with councillors last night about the party's messaging on Gaza amid fears of pending resignations. At the heated meeting, David Lammy and Keir Starmer's chief of staff, Sue Gray, were told they only have days to act. The meeting followed a Labour Party letter advising councillors not to attend pro-Palestine demonstrations. And councillors' fury is also a response to comments that Starmer and other senior Labour figures have made in the media over Gaza. And that includes comments like this. A siege is appropriate, cutting off power, cutting off water. Well, I think that Israel does have that right. Do you think cutting off food, water and electricity is within international law? 
I think that Israel has an absolute right to defend itself That's against terrorism. That's not the question I asked. It is an answer to the question that, that you've asked. Do you support the order to move them or not? The order to move them? Well, yeah. clearly. Just yes it, or no? It's not a yes or no, Victoria. Shehab Khan went on to report this about that meeting. Lamian Gray spoke to council leaders who demanded Starmer rose back on previous interview comments about potential war crimes in Gaza and has a firmer stance on condemning war crimes. Uh, they also demanded that councillors should not be stopped from attending Palestine demonstrations. They were particularly aggrieved by the messages they were sent on the weekend, which are revealed earlier. The meeting doesn't seem to have made much of a difference to Labour's messaging, though. This morning, Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy has said this on Sky News. Is there a humanitarian crisis in Gaza at the moment, yes or no? There's certainly the risk of a looming humanitarian crisis. Um, that's why we've been alongside a range of other international voices and the UK government urging Israel to make sure that uh, basic supplies of water and electricity are restored, that humanitarian aid gets in, that civilians are protected and that all leaders act in line with humanitarian law and do whatever is required and take every precaution they can to protect civilians. Nearly 3,000 Palestinians have now died in Gaza. 11,000 are injured. There's diminishing little water, no food, no power. According to the UN, nearly 500,000 Palestinians have been forced to flee their homes while bombs rain down from above. Meanwhile, the Jerusalem patriarchs and heads of churches wrote a letter on the 13th of October labelling very clearly uh, that what is happening in Gaza is a humanitarian crisis. But apparently, for John Healy, we aren't there yet. According to Shahab Khan, Labour is now facing a serious rebellion. One council leader who says they may have more than a dozen councillors threatening to resign demanded something is done to appease very unhappy councillors ASAP. One source described the entire meeting as a, quote, total mess, while another said they were shocked by how desperate some council leaders were. Quote, situation must be worse than we think. They're convinced they're losing local support. At least four Labour councillors, as well as Young Labour's BAME officer, have already resigned over the party's lack of condemnation for the assault on Gaza. And now today, a group of leading scholars on international law have written to the Labour leadership demanding they issue, quote, a public and detailed clarification of Labour's legal position on collective punishment and on the forcible transfer of civilians. Very, very serious stuff, both politically and legally. James... What I don't get here is that the Labour leadership could have condemned what happened the weekend before last, they could have offered an extended solidarity to British Jews, and they could have acknowledged that this is a humanitarian disaster and that we're seeing war crimes in Gaza. They could have proverbially had their cake and eaten it in terms of sort of political rhetoric and, and managing various different groups and their feelings. Why haven't they done that? One probably shouldn't discount the initial profound horror on October the 7th. But even then, I think it was very clear how intense the calls to sort of retaliatory violence would be. And certainly, um, if you've been paying attention to uh, Israeli politics, how volatile civil society would be in its wake. One of the things we didn't mention earlier was the, very, the great difficulty that Netanyahu is having with the emergent movement of families who, are, who, are, who have someone who's been taken hostage. But really the key to the Labour Party, I think, here is that there's minimal British political relevance internationally. And that means that the Labour Party handles these questions um, largely by turning inward and addressing itself. The Labour Party does that on a lot of things. Um, and I think key is something that we didn't see in the clip, but is important, is Lamy's answer to this question. Uh, to, he, he made a statement, something like, oh, I want to be Foreign Secretary one day. And so part of this is, I think, him... Um, and the Labour Party more generally wanting to project that image of the sort of reliable junior partner for the Atlantic hegemony. So um, the United States' uh, enthusiastic, perhaps excessively enthusiastic, um, younger partner. That's a very sort of post 9-11 uh, feeling. And I think both you and I will remember, because um, we're a little bit older than some of our colleagues, exactly how awful it was. Um, to be coming to political consciousness in the wake of 9-11. So, so in that sense, it's positioning itself as unthreatening to the security establishment. And there's also a touch here, of course, the, the David Lammy sort of Groucho Marx thing. You know, these are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. Second here, though, and I think is equally important, is the domestic political 
dynamic. And this is um, effectively using this kind of horrifying situation, and it is uh, a, an extraordinarily horrifying situation, to demonstrate that the party has changed post-Corbyn. Corbyn, of course, deeply, deeply associated um, with Palestinian solidarity, um, also of course, with the looming uh, uh, spectre of the scandal over anti-Semitism. The party thinks that those people likeliest to be offended by its position on this stuff, the left, um, most parts of the Muslim community, Palestinians in Britain, have nowhere else to go. It's a very famous old Peter Mandelson phrase. Recent shifts, I think, therefore, you can see as a result of kind of party discontent, but perhaps also the belated realization of just how bad things are going to get in Gaza. Um, but the really key thing here, I think, to take away is to really stress, you know, war crimes uh, and war crimes are not justified because they're a war. You know, that the, the, there's a war going on. Uh, we, we call them war crimes because they're tempting for belligerence in war. That's why we forbid them. Um, because they often present themselves as tempting, if utterly brutal and utterly destructive solutions to the strategic problems of war. And that is something that a younger Keir Starmer might have remembered. I wonder as well, you know, because like I said at the start of that question to you, James, there is a world where this isn't zero sum, right? You can respond in a very authentic, meaningful way to British Jews. You can condemn what happened um, the weekend before last in, in southern Israel. And you can call out war crimes and a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and, and tell Israel that you shouldn't be sending in a ground invasion. You, you can do all of those things. That's, that's the principled position. And they haven't. And, and what I find really interesting, James, is that for whatever other weaknesses the likes of Keir Starmer or, or David Lamy have, they are aware of political optics. Um, and they do care about what people think about them. Um, and I, I don't mean the councillors. I don't mean... Um, people leaving or Muslim activists, you know, getting in touch with in touch with Shahab Khan. But, you know, Keir Starmer presents himself as a liberal, humane, human rights lawyer, Mr. Darcy from Bridget Jones' diary. And this is clearly very at odds with that. And I wonder, I'll put this question to you, I wonder if that's partly a result of the fact that the people around Starmer, the people at the top of the Labour Party, have a massive cognitive bias, frankly, a herd mentality, which basically means that anything Israel does, we have to support it. Anything involving the Palestinians has to be condemned or will be mealy-mouthed. And, and I think, frankly, that was their default. That's their set of reflexes. It leaves them very poorly equipped for a situation where we could see tens of thousands of deaths, where we, we're going to see, if there is a ground invasion, ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's already started. The point is, will, will the Israelis back it up? What do you make of that, this idea that at the top of the Labour Party, there are just so many people with all these presumptions and sort of ideological inclinations, which meant this was always inevitable? I mean, I think that's right. One of the things that, that has happened since the 7th of October is that things have become unpredictable. Um, and it's not just in um, Israel and Palestine that things have become unpredictable. Uh, there is a series of set responses in moments like this, um, which have been predictable for years. They're the responses that were trotted out in 2014. They're the responses that were trotted out in 2009. They're the responses that have been trotted out um, time and time and time again, um, really over the last uh, two decades and a half. They no longer work. And the thing is that those responses are the ones that kicked into action at the top of the Labour Party. As you say, their kind of political instincts, I think, for those people, and particularly those people um, who come from that, that section of the Labour right. It's obvious that the situation has now changed in a way that means that those responses aren't adequate. And so I think, in a sense, what you're seeing is them scrambling for their, uh, for, for, to, to adjust to the new situation. Um, and obviously, that's, you know, that I don't, you know, they're not handling it very well. I think they're realizing they're going to have to do better. They're realizing they're going to have to carry the can um, or, or carry, they're going to look like fools if, as looks like it's happening, uh, the US position changes. Um, and as the uh, as details continue to come out of Gaza. Um, but yes, you're right about the political instinct. That's what's happening here. Next story. Parliamentary elections have taken place in Poland, and the results are significant. Opposition parties have together won enough seats to oust the right-wing ruling Law and Justice Party. The weekend election also had the country's largest ever recorded turnout since communism ended in 1989, with over 70% of the electorate voting. 
Led by former European Council President and Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk, the centrist civic coalition won nearly 31% of the vote. They're now likely to form a government in coalition with the left-wing New Left, as well as the centre-right alliance Third Way. Law and Justice, led by this man, Jaroslaw Kaczynski, won a plurality with just over 35% of the vote, but that isn't enough to form a government. The Polish president, Law and Justice's Andrzej Duda, must now ask one of the parties to try and form a government, more or less like we do here in the UK with the king. He may give Law and Justice time to try and form its own coalition, but with all the other major parties having ruled out working with it, the chances of that seem slim. If Tusk forms a government over the coming weeks, it will bring to an end eight years of law and justice rule, a period which has seen the party erode democratic institutions, scale back civil rights, and seize control of the state media. Law and Justice ran a vicious campaign on anti-LGBT rights, xenophobia, and scaremongering about the EU. Another central issue in this election was abortion rights. In 2021, protests broke out across Poland after abortion laws were made the most restrictive in Europe. The law currently allows women to terminate a pregnancy only in cases of rape or when there is a risk to the health of the mother. But prosecutions of doctors have meant that, in practice, abortion has become almost impossible, leading to the deaths of at least seven women. Tusk has pledged to liberalize abortion law, allowing termination on any grounds up to the 12th week of pregnancy. At the same time as the parliamentary vote, Law and Justice also pushed through a referendum fielding loaded questions on issues like migration, the retirement age, and the Belarus border wall. Widely seen as a stunt by the ruling party, many polls refused to participate with turnout for the referendum only 40%, according to some exit polls, well short of what was needed to make it binding, which was 50%. Joining me now from Warsaw is Agnieszka Wyszniewska, editor-in-chief at the left-wing daily magazine Kritika Polityczna. Agnieszka, I hope I said that right. Uh, what was your initial reaction to these election results? Initial reaction, not only mine. We had uh, as a critical politician, we had the uh, event, election night, let's say, with an audience. It was live show, and when we have seen results, there was like the screaming. There was a huge, huge, uh, like lots of joy, and uh, we know it's not going to be easy right now. So, as you said, to build a new government. Like law and justice, they had the biggest score, like they won this election, but uh, probably they will not going to build the government. And one thing that's a bit strange for me, not strange, I mean, it's obviously, it's a welcome turn of events, but from the outside looking in, the Polish economy has been doing terrifically well in recent years. I think it grew 5% last year, almost 8% in 2021. It's unusual for administration to have that kind of growth and then lose government or a governing position after eight years. Can you explain that? It's uh, it's interesting because the economy is going good, not because of this government, but even if we had such a bad government. So people organize themselves. And we could see this during pandemic, see this when the uh, invasion, like the full-scale invasion started in Ukraine, when many people from Ukraine came to Poland, people organized themselves not the government, not the politicians. So I think this successes in economy is because people organize themselves and uh, not because the government helped them. So the, as you mentioned, the people were really tired of this uh, unequal information, like what they did with the public media. Now we have like, like propaganda media, openly propaganda media. What they did with the constitutional court, what they did with the, all the judiciary system. 22% of the people went to vote. This is, the, this is amazing. This, is, this was great mobilization. And people stay in a queue like till midnight in some places, in one o'clock, two o'clock, just because they wanted to vote. And you just mentioned the high turnout, which is fascinating. Highest turnout in the country since the end of communism in the late 1980s. Of course, it's important to say that law and justice still came first. They got a plurality, so they didn't get a majority of the votes or a majority of the overall vote, but they got a plurality. They did come first. Can you explain the class breakdown of the votes? So, you know, in terms of manual workers, historic working class, who are they voting for? Who are young graduates voting for? Who are the, the, the professional classes voting for? Where were all these different 
demographics going in terms of their vote? What is interesting, uh, law and justice, they had almost the same result in uh, number of voters, not in percentage. But many new voters, like maybe the people who didn't vote before, they decided to vote on someone else. And there was a huge mobilization also, huge mobilization uh, around the NGOs and the women's movements. Many, many campaigns focused on uh, inviting women, inviting women to vote and inviting young people to vote. And uh, this year, the, there was the, the, the biggest also score around the young people who voted. So uh, usually because of demography, like there is much more older people than younger people. So politicians are usually not interested in like, you know, communication with young audience. But this time, this young voters, they also decided to go to election. And uh, these new voters and the young voters, they really changed this, the, the results. That's such an uh, intriguing answer. I hope something similar happens in this country soon. Uh, final question. What, what's the prospective agenda of a Tusk-led government? Because, of course, you're somebody from the left. Tusk is very much in the centre. Some would say the extreme centre, something of a neoliberal even. So what does that mean in terms of progressive reforms, but also uh, from an economic standpoint, helping working class polls? This is really interesting because on one hand, because when law and justice was so conservative in, uh, in example, abortion law, everyone who were against them, almost everyone who were against them, they had to <coughs> say like, you know, uh, we will going to do something with that. And even Donald Tusk said that we're going to change abortion law, as you mentioned this. And this is something new. This is something that Donald Tusk never said before. And this is uh, so the, the atmosphere had changed. So because when you are against such a strong conservative uh, party, then these new ideas now they don't seem even for liberals, even for like the centrist conservatives, they don't sound so crazy. So I think it changed a lot. And uh, yeah, Donald Tusk is not just, you know, he's not a left winger, but he also spent some time in Europe and he see that abortion law in Poland compared to all Europe is really like old, old fashioned. And this is something we need to change. That's really interesting, Agnieszka. The idea of a centrist or a, a liberal moving in a, in a positive direction, it's uh, unusual, but uh, I hope it's repeated elsewhere. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, Agnieszka. Uh, that was super fascinating, right? The idea of a a youth quake. People talk about it all the time in politics, and yet uh, it never seems to arrive. It seems to have happened in Poland. There's hope, people. Next story. Leila Moran is a Liberal Democrat MP whose mother is Palestinian. She's recently spoken about how worried she is for relatives living in Gaza. But for GMB presenter Richard Maidley, that connection was enough to prompt this bizarre interaction. It is not true to say that Hamas individually have killed the 2,600 Palestinians who have mm. died. It is true to say that they have made a situation much, much worse. Mm. And there is no condoning, and I'm not about to start condoning what they've done. And it's awful. And it just needs to stop now. With your family, it just needs to stop with your family connections uh, in Gaza, uh, did, did you have any indication of what was going to happen uh, 10 days ago, two weeks ago? Was there any, any word on the street? In not, not this. I think no. everyone, <clears throat> everyone has been surprised by, first of all, uh, partly the timing, the sophistication, the, the way that it's happened. The word on the street? You think Leila Moran, the MP, she's the, she's the representative of the city. Richard Maidley, she's in Oxford. She's in leafy Oxford. What a bizarre question to ask. You know who did know about what was going to happen? The Egyptians. They told the Israelis 72 hours before the strikes that something was amiss, to be careful, there could be a big security challenge in the South. I should add, the Israelis deny this, uh, but this is something which has been said by a very senior uh, US congressperson. And in addition to that, Netanyahu's own security chiefs told him something was brewing. This has been said repeatedly, publicly, and it wasn't really listened to. So the word was on the street, Richard. It just wasn't going towards... Uh, Leila Moran. James, what did you make of this? I, I find Richard Madeley such an interesting character because he, he's just stupid enough to say the thing out loud that basically everybody else in broadcast media is thinking. That is actually his, his value. And so that's one of the things I, I saw that there were comments 
um, circulating online saying, oh, you know, that that Maidley must go, this is unacceptable. I actually think he's very useful to the left where he is. I think he's useful in that he expresses, as you say, um, the logic behind a lot of the comments uh, or a lot of the lines of questioning that are taken um, by mainstream journalists. It does seem to me to be completely mad to allow him to handle stuff of this seriousness. I mean, this is a guy who's, as far as I can tell, the mainstay of his career was sort of, you know, funny shaped vegetables and semi-lobotomized pop stars. You know, so it's odd to see him sort of pursuing this line um, in person, but he's, he's, you know, he, you know, he's ultimately unimportant. He's very useful for us in that you can see, you know, he's absorbed um, the logic that's used across the rest of the press and just repeated it, as you say, in this kind of bizarre, bold-faced way. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a bizarre and what, you know, obviously a profoundly offensive line of questioning. There's also another sort of issue here, which is the sort of Jeremy Carlification of UK political journalism. I mean, I wouldn't qualify this as political journalism, but it's current, this is current affairs journalism, right? You're asking a politician about an event that happened two weeks ago and the, and, and the geopolitical fallout. And I've thought about this for a long time, that Jeremy Carlification, the adoption of this kind of way of talking and reporting and discussing and digesting. But then I see literally Jeremy Kyle on talk TV doing all of these things. And it's interesting to say that you have these people from like 20 years ago from daytime TV, and now all of a sudden, and look, to be fair to them, they've not asked for it. I don't think Richard Madeley wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I want to ask the big questions about the future of West Asian security and Israel-Palestine. I'm sure he has never said that in his life, but for some reason, broadcast journalism keeps on thrusting these people to the, to the forefront of the conversation. Something's gone really badly wrong with how we do broadcast journalism in this country, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I mean, I think one of the things that, that is true, actually, is that most people in Richard Madeley's position think that they um, should be invited to pronounce or inquire about virtually everything. There's no subject that should be off limits to them. They think that their expertise knows no bounds, um, despite what we saw this morning. I suppose the other side of this, I think, is to say that, yes, lots of news has become infotainment. And it's not just sort of daytime presenters making the move into sort of serious news or kind of hard current affairs. It's also the sort of unfortunate uh, habit of telling journalists that their personalities are interesting. Um, and that, I think, is fatal to journalism. I actually don't, you know, lots of people really like the sort of, you know, I'm Emily Maitlis and here's my opinions, my feelings about these things. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that great for journalism. Um, you know, I think it's important to try to adopt. You know, you can be open about your commitments. You can be open about the angle from which you're approaching something. But the thing that I think is incumbent upon journalists um, and commentators, actually, is to really approach um, this stuff as fair-mindedly as they can while being you know, open about what their commitments are. I'm not interested um, in jokes made by journalists. They're not, they don't tend to be very good jokes. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, we saw it recently with um, Kay Burley on Sky. We put a clip out of that from last week. I think it's got over 300,000 views. And she was pushed back in her, her misreporting, frankly, of comments made by the Palestinian ambassador. And she, you know, she's performing a role which is kind of obstreperous. Oh, go away, you trivial little people, but you're a journalist. You're meant to present two sides of the argument. Even if you only believe one side of that argument, it's literally your job. You're there to inform people. I don't think they think that. I don't think Richard Madeley at the back of his mind says, how can I add value to my audience? How can I add value? They don't know about this. How can I tell them in an informative, entertaining, interesting way? That should be the first question of journalism. It's not. Next story. The BBC often finds itself under attack because of its purported commitment to impartiality. From the left calling it too right-wing to the right calling it too left-wing. You know the story. We've heard it all before. Uh, and yesterday it came under attack for labelling protests across the UK last weekend in support of Palestine as in fact expressing support for Hamas. Here's the BBC News Channel before midday yesterday. Here in the UK, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak visited <clears throat> excuse me, a Jewish school in London to underline his support for the community. The visit followed several demonstrations across Britain, during which people voiced their backing for Hamas, which many countries, including the UK and US, consider a terrorist organisation. So those demonstrations are in support of Hamas. You might think, much well, a mistake, a glitch, perhaps the newsreader misspoke while reading the autocue. Maybe, happens. Except... That exact same thing was said by another BBC newsreader, Mariam Moshiri, not long after. 
the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has visited a Jewish school in London to underline his support for the Jewish community. The visit followed several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas, which several countries, including the UK and the US, consider a terrorist organisation. And here is Moshiri again, speaking to editor of the Jewish News, Justin Cohen. I think it's worth taking this back to the beginning. What we saw on Saturday was, uh, Saturday a week ago, was the result of a pre-planned attack by Hamas terrorists on civilians. They'd been planning it for months. They decided uh, months ago, and they decided to plan every single detail of it, to go into uh, houses, to go into the streets and to behead babies um, and to uh, rape women and to do the most unspeakable crimes possible. The result of that in the UK and around the world has been some people have decided that this is the right moment to demonstrate support for Hamas, to take to the streets calling for the annihilation of Israel. And let's be clear, that is what from the river to the sea means, but also... And that was happening over the weekend, wasn't that, it, in London? That, that was happening over the weekend in London. And to a target uh, British Jews with uh, anti-Semitism that now, amounts, that now amounts to a 600% increase. Now, Mashiri, rather than questioning that inaccurate claim or probing it, seems almost enthusiastic. And that was happening over the weekend in London. Obviously, 150,000 people didn't march in support of Hamas last weekend, which is why this statement was given on air not long after. Earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Mariam Moshiri also posted this on her Twitter account. Earlier, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about, quote, several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the demonstrations. Uh, that's not really an apology, especially uh, given she intoned about how this being in London. Now, of course, at the same time as all of this, the BBC is keen to emphasise its fact-checking capabilities. Remember, BBC Verify? Well, here's the BBC's Nick Robinson on Twitter promoting the anti-disinformation work of his colleague, Shayan Sarazadeh, over at BBC Verify. Beware misinformation about what's happening in the Middle East. The more what the FOMG is, the more likely it's untrue. Don't share false info. Here to help highlight lies, old footage and video game clips, yes really, is Cheyenne86. He does a fresh thread daily. And then there was this piece published the day before on the BBC website. Who's behind the Israel-Gaza disinformation and hate online? Uh, in this case, it was you guys. Your news channel effectively libeled, let's be real, as many as 200,000 people nationally, while they exercise their democratic right to protest, claiming that they support a prescribed terrorist organization, which of course is a criminal offense. That's quite a big deal. That's quite a big deal. Supporting Hamas could be as long as 10 years in prison. That's the maximum sentence under the 2000 Terrorism Act. That's what you said these people had done. Now, that piece I just cited itself is actually incredibly bizarre. This part in particular really stuck out. According to Syabra, a company based in Israel that analyzes social media, one in five accounts taking part in conversations about the attacks committed by Hamas since the 7th of October are fake. Fake in this context can mean they are automatically operated, but others could also be run by real people posing under false identities. So the BBC's disinformation efforts examining Israel and Hamas extend to quoting a private business based in Israel. Can you believe it? Rather than doing all this stuff, getting all these random consultancies from across the planet, maybe try getting the basics right, like not repeatedly claiming 150,000 people broke the law last weekend for a crime which would mean up to 10 years in prison. Just a thought. Next story. A hysterical frenzy is being whipped up by some on the right precisely in order to not have an informed, sensible conversation about the Israel-Palestine conflict. 
The claims are becoming increasingly outlandish, I think, because the response by Israel to the appalling events of the weekend before last are illegal and inexcusable. Paul Goodman is the editor of Conservative Home, and he used to be a Conservative MP. And writing for the Times earlier this week, he said this, In our democracy, power is dispersed. Ministers don't ban marches, launch prosecutions, run football, or fully control the civil service. With the possible exception of the last, this dissemination of power is a good thing, at least when the country is at peace, protecting citizens and institutions from ministerial overreach and tyrannical government. However, it is less of a good thing when the country faces war abroad or insurrection here. The second is threatened if a terrorist organization banned by law has tens of thousands of supporters at least and takes to the streets. This has never happened in Britain until now. In other words, Goodman believes that those marching in support of Palestine last weekend are universally supporters of Hamas and they want to foment, in his words, an insurrection. Goodman says British institutions aren't well-placed to understand the supposed threat to the UK from Hamas supporters, and that a reason for this is the woke belief, yes, that word again, that the West is always wrong. Israel is part of the West, and therefore the woke thing is to support Palestine. That's why all those people marched at the weekend. But what Goodman goes on to write next is even more extraordinary. The Prime Minister and Home Secretary must weigh up the arguments for and against banning Middle East-related marches altogether. There are arguments either way, free speech and enforceability lean one way, public order and safety the other. Some universities need reminding of their duty to ensure student safety. Sunak should prepare for violence against Jews, Muslims and others, with Hamas's supporters pushing for more control of the streets for an all-party and non-party campaign featuring sports people, celebrities, national treasures, and so on under the slogan, Not Here. Now, violence against Jews and Muslims is very possible. And of course, the government should be doing everything to ensure that doesn't happen. But Hamas's supporters are pushing for control of the streets. Really? What streets are these precisely? Maybe they're the ones in High Wycombe, which is where Goodman once uh, represented as an MP. Maybe the owner of that organic wine cellar on Wycombe High Street, who happens to think Israel is guilty of war crimes, is an extremist on the front line of a forthcoming British intifada. Could barricades be coming to the Chilterns? And whatever happened to the apparently free speech loving right? It's a question I often ask myself. You can have freedom of speech and association just as long as we agree. Chaps, I don't think it works like that. Uh, in a similar vein to Goodman's article, here was Nigel Farage on GB News last night. One of the things I find just so incredibly confusing is how the progressive left and some of the youth seem to be supporting this Palestinian cause. Here we have an extraordinary sign saying queers for Palestine. Now, I don't quite know uh, when that picture was taken, whether it was Saturday, whether it was before, but perhaps these people saying queers for Palestine ought to understand uh, that in Gaza, homosexuality between men is illegal, punishable by 10 years in prison, and many accounts that Hamas actually torture those they believe to be homosexual. But this shows the absolute mess that the so-called progressive left have got into. Many on the left appear to be supporting an ideology that is not very far away from that that emerged in Germany in the early 1930s. And I really genuinely believe that. And perhaps no surprise that the star speaker on Saturday was, of course, one Jeremy Corbyn. And the last image I'm going to show you from Saturday is the most disgraceful one. Yes, that is the cenotaph. And right next to it is a stage that's been put up with slogans about Palestine. Quite how, quite how the local council or the police, and they're now blaming each other, could have allowed that to be put up next to a cenotaph, I simply don't know. It all really makes me ask the question, is this now modern Britain? Are those scenes reflective now of really quite a large part of our population? 
Nigel Farage there saying that thousands of people are on the streets of London supporting Hamas. And that support for Hamas, which is apparently widespread, is akin to support for Nazism in the 1930s. Then Farage finishes by commenting that actually, all of this is far more widely held than many conservatives realize. So we have the Times and Farage basically saying that in London last weekend, 150,000 people supported Hamas, with Goodman saying similar protests should be perhaps banned in the future and that those involved would likely be involved in any, quote, insurrection. Now, I obviously find all of this nonsensical. Actually, frankly, fantastical is a better word, and it completely mischaracterizes those who support peace and human rights in the Middle East. But that final point from Farage is interesting because it's true that support for Palestine is far more widespread than you would know if you just watched the TV and read the newspapers. Now, we know this not because of somebody on GB News or Richard Madeley, but because of polling from YouGov. It found that while 21% now sympathize more with Israel, 17% sympathize more with Palestine. That's, of course, the general public. But here's where it gets really interesting, because if you look at views by age, you see massive polarization. A plurality of people under 49 are more sympathetic to Palestine. That doesn't mean they hate Israel or even dislike it. It simply means they're more sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians. And I think that should be a pretty clear explanation for why so many people would want to go on a demonstration expressing support with Gaza. The question then is this. Do the likes of Goodman and Farage seriously think that a plurality of those under 50 in this country actively support a terrorist organization and are willing to go to the streets and take up violence? To start, in the words of Goodman, an insurrection. Or, and bear with me here, perhaps they've just failed to understand how millions of their compatriots feel about this subject. Imagine that. People disagreeing with you. Ban them! Deport them! Not the healthiest of responses, is it? Uh, James, I have a theory. These takes are intended to confect permanent hysteria precisely so we don't talk about the facts, who's responsible for what, and actually the default belligerence of Israeli foreign policy and its breaches of international law. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, this is one of the areas where the, the last couple of weeks have really reminded me of uh, the post 9-11 period most strongly, um, where people engage in all of this kind of quite extraordinary, um, you know, totally unhinged commentary about the sort of enemy within and that which lies within uh, the, the, the British state. One of the things I think that I probably should say, and I think, you know, it was, I was reminded of it when, when watching that Farage clip, is, you know, I'm a gay man, right? It, it is not news to me that gay people in Gaza are oppressed by Hamas. We know this to be true. It is baffling to me that you can accept that to be true and then believe that they're going to, their lives are going to be improved by dropping a bomb on their head, murdering their family, um, destroying their home. And this is this is a completely puzzling and 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 utterly bizarre response. It, I should say it has parallels with the arguments that were made around the Iraq War and the the Afghanistan War, um, when when claims were made that invading these places would liberate um, their inhabitants. It's striking to me that people don't say, "Oh, well, after uh, we sort of." Uh, flatten Gaza somehow there will be uh, you know emerge a, a better society um, that kind of claim on the part of of, of um, uh, bombing enthusiasts is no longer made so I think that's just important to say um, look th these articles this kind of mad stuff some of it is wanting to bring things into existence by describing them this is something that the right does a lot um, you know, the Goodman article is really bizarre kind of crank territory. I hadn't read it until you sent it to me earlier. It's really, really crazy. Um, you know, but there's going to be lots of this stuff. I think the things to say here are, you know, one, there's not very much that's surprising about the numbers as they stand. One of the other um, stats from that YouGov poll um, is that there are a lot of don't knows uh, among young people about Hamas being a terrorist organization, largely because they probably don't know what Hamas is. And this is one of the things that's important right now. Um, I think of the work of a scholar, a man called Marcus Pryor, who wrote a book a good few years ago now called Post Broadcast Democracy, in which he points out people's political people don't stay engaged with political news all the time. 
right? It's in moments of kind of extreme world events where they reach out for political news and form their opinions about things. So it's not surprising to me that people who are in the, the kind of older age bracket have a strong and um, you know determined opinion about Hamas, and people in younger age brackets perhaps don't know um, what Hamas is. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been relevant to their lives for a very long time. Um, so I think that's you know this is an important thing right now um, about making these arguments in public and about being brave enough to have these arguments in public and to to be clear about um, because people are going to be looking for um, answers on this stuff. Um, so salience is really important here. The other thing to say I think um, and th that is important is that we have this kind of wider atmosphere of McCarthyism emerging very very quickly at the moment. Um, and this is, you know, I was thinking of this, um, there's an Ofcom director who has been kind of given the boot for something she said on her private social media um, about Palestine. And there's a real crackdown on freedom of expression. And the other thing to say, I think, about the demonstrators at the weekend is, you know, I remember going on that demonstration back in, in the early 2000s as a young, um, very young adult against the Iraq war. Um, there are a lot of young people, I was at the demonstration on Saturday, and there are a lot of young people there, young Muslim people, um, young British Muslims who will have grown up in the wake of the war on terror. Uh, and their political subjectivity is extremely, extremely interesting. Um, lots of them, and particularly, would have been taken to that demonstration as children by their parents. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to have in mind. So, you know, it's, it, it seems, I don't want to get caught up too much in this question of um, you know, the right and, and, and attacks on freedom of speech. They don't really believe in it. They never really have. Um, the important thing here is that people are going to be reaching out for, uh, to understand this situation. Um, and there's going to be a very, very strong push in the British press to make things that were acceptable political opinions, but sort of, you know, 10, 20 years ago, basic solidarity with Palestinians, um, you know, utterly outside the realm of respectable opinion. And that's why I think it's important, even if you feel uncomfortable, um, to demonstrate that you that 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 you oppose this should be kind of basic you oppose um, things like ethnic cleansing and collective punishment um, and I think that's something that everyone can do right now. Yeah, I think that's so well said, James. I think that's so well said, and I think when you said demonstrate, and obviously the, the the easiest way to demonstrate how you feel about something is a demonstration. And I think the fact that it was so large last weekend has really upset many people on the right. You know, the the idea that you can have the editor of Conservative Home suggesting that we ban protests if they relate to the Middle East. Does that include potential British invasion of a Middle Eastern country? If there was an Iraq 2.0, we, we won't permit protests. Where, where does that end? Is it Egypt, the Middle East, or is it North Africa? Is Afghanistan, Central Asia? I'll throw that into there, Brown, as well. You know, I, I, show me your reasoning. Um, and it is, it is really strange. It is really strange. I think you're right, James. We're speedrunning McCarthyism right now. And if you're upset about people being incinerated in a hospital by one of the world's most powerful air forces, if you're upset about that and you go and march against that and you call on your own government to do its darndest to stop that happening again, apparently you're a supporter of Hamas. No sensible, intelligent person thinks that. And these people have to run with those crazy lines precisely because a sensible, informed conversation doesn't suit them. Uh, James, thanks for joining me this evening. Pleasure. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.